Well, last week we began our series in Nehemiah by setting the context, delving deep into Nehemiah's prayer life, revealing to us the major theme of this book, and that is worship. God is bringing back his people to worship again. As the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, the people can again worship. That's the essence of the vision that God put in Nehemiah's heart. Rebuild the wall, rebuild the city for God's name and glory. And so today we're going to see Nehemiah begin to put this vision into action. And four months have passed since God had laid on his heart to rebuild the wall. We're going to see that he's taken his time through prayer, but also through extensive planning. He hasn't just been waiting for some kind of spiritual experience, um, some kind of uh, mystical answer out of thin air. But the gospel was already placed in his heart. The, the vision was already placed in his heart. And what he's done in the meantime is he spent time praying through it and planning. See, he's not going to go to the king without first knowing what it is he's going to do. So I've got three headings for us today. You've got your bulletin. Uh, you can follow along. It says uh, the first one is Nehemiah speaks to the king. It'll be in verses 1 to 8 with that. And then Nehemiah surveys the ruins. And then Nehemiah shares the vision. So I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, let's begin with the first one. Uh, chapter 1 ends with us hearing that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. We didn't really cover this last week, but it, it is an extremely powerful position. In some ways, he is the, the right-hand man to the king. Uh, it is one of the most trusted positions. Nehemiah, in some sense, would be the last line of defense to any sort of assassination attempt on the king's life. Any food or drink that is to be consumed by the king would first have to be consumed by Nehemiah. And if you could convert the cupbearer to your cause, you could assassinate the king. You might think, well, that's not really serious, is it? Well, it was. In those days, it was a serious threat. King Artaxerxes' own father, King Xerxes, had been assassinated by one of his courtiers. It was a reality. And so this is a powerful position. It's a trusted position. And we don't know much about Nehemiah's past. We don't know how he worked himself up to this position. But we can, of course, surmise that it was God's ordained plan. God had had his hand on Nehemiah. Now, four months have passed since he first heard of the state of Jerusalem and its people and the vision that God gave him to rebuild. But he did not act impulsively on his emotions or his calling. He took the time to pray through it, to understand that vision, to plan it. And we'll see that now in how he presents himself to the king. Now, one thing to understand is that you did not present yourself to the king sad. Why would you be sad? You're in, you're in the king's presence. You should be joyful. At the least, it was bad manners. At the very worst, it could mean your death sentence. If you know anything about the story of Esther, you'd understand the similarities there. We're going to be studying Esther in March. But see Nehemiah's response at the end of verse 1 of chapter 2. After serving the king, as was his duty, he remarks that he had not been sad in the king's presence before. And the king notices something. The king is perplexed. 
but he also shows great perception. He sees that Nehemiah is not physically ill, verse 2, but he recognizes that it is a sadness of heart. Now, at this point, Nehemiah lets us know what he is feeling. At the end of verse 2, he is afraid, and he's got good reason to be afraid. You see, both his posture before the king and his coming request could lead to his death. How is the king going to respond? Four months of prayer, four months of planning have led to this point. So Nehemiah responds, verse 3, May the king live forever. And that shouldn't be too concerning for us. His job as the cupbearer was to ensure the king lived. It's also a customary remark to wish the king long life. And what it does is it assures King's, uh, King Artaxerxes of Nehemiah's loyalty. As he sets up to ask his question, it's wise for Nehemiah to honor the king in this way. So he follows verse 3, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed? See, Nehemiah here explains his sadness, but see again that he uses wisdom in how he does, his, uh, does it. Firstly, for Persian sensibilities, the, the grave is a sacred place. So Nehemiah speaks of the neglected graves of his forefathers to, to earn the king's sympathy. But see what he doesn't do. He doesn't mention the name of the city. He has said just enough to put the ball into the king's court. Because Artaxerxes is not an innocent bystander in this. He's as much ruthless king as any other. And in fact, he is directly responsible for the current state of Jerusalem. It was he that stopped the rebuilding effort in Ezra. So Nehemiah is right to be afraid. But the king responds in the most amazing way. What is it you want? Right, that's incredible. To be asked by the king, what do you want? A king who holds your life in his hands. The king who holds the power to give you your heart's desires. And he's just an earthly king. I'm reminded here of the numerous New Testament passages where we have Jesus encouraging his disciples to, to ask their father, to request of their father through prayer about both their needs in life and needs in ministry. Here's just a handful from each of the Gospels. Matthew 21, verse 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark eleven twenty four. therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Luke 10, verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Friends, we have a great king in heaven who answers our prayers. For us to pray is to expect that God not only hears it, but that God will answer it. Sure, it may not be exactly what we want, but he will answer it. And it will be for your good. Richard Sibbs is a Puritan. He wrote, when we shoot an arrow, we look to the fall of it. When we send a ship to sea, we look for the return of it. When we sow seed, we look for a harvest. 
And so when we sow our prayers into God's bosom, I don't have a great way of writing. When we sow our prayers into God's bosom, shall we not look for an answer? And so notice here, Nehemiah's response, not immediately to the king of Persia, but to the king of heaven. He prays. What we might call an, an arrow prayer, that quick prayer to God that displays our utmost need for him to interact with us, to interact with his people, to interact with the world, to divinely move the hearts of men. We see how Nehemiah combined diplomacy with the king with utmost dependence on God. And because of this, because of God moving through the prayers of his people, Artaxerxes gives his servant what he wants. Isn't that incredible? Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, is not on earth to serve the needs of Nehemiah. Artaxerxes does not serve the God of heaven, yet he does God's will anyway. And he gives Nehemiah what he wants. See, friends, a bad king can rule wisely. A good king can rule with folly. Don't we see that throughout the Old Testament? But what we also see that even a king's heart can be moved through prayer. See the king's response, verse 6. How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Now it seems here that Nehemiah is actually quite, uh, the king is actually quite fond of Nehemiah. And there's almost a sense of friendship there. Nehemiah's character up until this point in his life as a cupbearer has endeared himself to the most powerful man. Now, this doesn't mean that Nehemiah is safe, right? He can't show tardiness or a disrespect in front of the king, but it is precisely that he has acted with much wisdom and prayer over the years that he has this kind of relationship with the king. And now Nehemiah is set to begin his plan. Four months of praying has led to four months of planning. Nehemiah knows exactly how long it's going to take for him to build that wall. And he knows what he needs. And so he hasn't appeared before the king without a plan. And we see here that he not only gives a time, doesn't answer the king with a time, but also in verse 7 to 8, we're not going to read it, but, but follow along. Nehemiah also bravely requests letters to the governors for safe treatment and travel and a letter from the king's forest for the various, uh, for the timber for the various building projects. What we see here is the gracious hand of God is on Nehemiah. He gets the letters. He gets the king's protection. He gets the king's resources. His prayer and his planning to fulfill the mission that God has laid on his heart, well, it's born fruit. Well, now Nehemiah faces a three-month journey from Susa to Jerusalem, a 1,600-kilometer journey, and it's through enemy territory for if you're a Jew. But again, we see the gracious hand of God is on him. And God has answered Nehemiah's prayer of success from chapter 1. And whatever Nehemiah prayed for now in that arrow prayer, just before making his request, we see that God has been faithful to him too there. Friends, we can learn here simply that God is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his plans. And we serve a good and great God. 
Next, let's look how Nehemiah surveys the ruins. Almost immediately as Nehemiah arrives, well, we see opposition. Sanballat and Tobiah and later Geshem oppose Nehemiah. Now, we're not going to spend too much time looking at opposition today. There's plenty of time in the book of Nehemiah for that. But perhaps just a question, how often do you get discouraged by opposition? It is for me, I confess, probably one of the um, most toughest parts of ministry. Notice here when the opposition arrives, it doesn't come at the heart stage. It doesn't come at the vision as the vision is being formulated. It doesn't come at the prayer stage. It comes when it's time to start doing. That's when we see opposition appear. And as we'll see in a moment, what we need from Christians is the desire to serve God faithfully through opposition. And for church folk, you here to think carefully how your response to myself to John, to the elders, maybe your small group leader, maybe someone in charge of a ministry area in the church. Do your responses encourage or discourage? I, I, I have no doubt that none of us here answer and go to our elders or go to me and John with the desire to discourage us. I don't think that's your, your heart's plan. But before you say things like, we can't do that, or that won't work, first think, how can I support the vision that God has given the church, that God has given this leader of this ministry? That's not to say that you don't have helpful things to say and advice. You certainly do. And a good leader often asks for those kinds of things. But also think, how can I make this vision work? It's a good question to ask. But first, let's see Nehemiah as he enters Jerusalem for the first time. Uh, In verse 11, we are told that he had been there for three days before he sets out with a few men in the cover of darkness. And what we see here that Nehemiah is not in a hurry. Although he's got the plan, he's got the vision. He's got the resources. He's got God on his side, yet still he is wise in how he acts. He knows there's opposition watching his every move. He he knows he is coming to a discouraged and broken people. Again, this is his first time in Jerusalem. He must move wisely. He must understand firsthand the problem. And there isn't a war for a lack of desire, for a lack of effort. It is rather that up till this point, there have been seemingly insurmountable opposition and objection, primarily political. Right? It would not have been in the surrounding nation's interests, although they're all under Persian rule. They still have some sense of identity, and it would not be in their interest for Israel to become a walled nation again. Sanballat and Tobiah, they're governors of surrounding areas of Moab, Uh, They're potentially Samaritans, so there's a mixed Jewish heritage there. But their allegiance is not to Israel. And so Nehemiah needs to tread carefully. He needs to understand the full situation, what he is up against. And so he takes his time. 
And in verse 16, we see that he doesn't tell any of the Jewish leaders or elders or priests why he is there. It's all hush. So under the cover of darkness, after the third day, he inspects the walls. He goes around the city from burnt gate to burnt gate, from rubble to rubble. He sees the full extent of the problem. What did we see last week? Nehemiah wept when he was 1,600 kilometers away, when he had heard just the account of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. But now he has seen it with his eyes. Our passage doesn't tell us, but perhaps we can imagine what he is feeling, what he is thinking as he understands the depths of despair of his people, the fear and the insecurities and the hopelessness and the lack of true worship. Now, Nehemiah saw more of the situation in the dark of night than others could see in the light of day. And what Nehemiah sees is utter despair, but Nehemiah is also a gospel messenger. Although there is nothing but death and destruction, well, he serves a God of hope and life. Where others see no hope, he sees a faithful God able to rebuild out of the rubble. Friends, isn't that the gospel for us? Friends, the gospel is good news in the midst of the darkness. Where the exile saw rubble, Nehemiah saw the God who, who takes broken things and uses it for his glory. Friends, the only way we can have anything to do with God is if he would first dirty his hands with things that are broken. Here's some imagery from the Gospels about God using broken things. It is Peter's broken nets that convince him to follow Jesus as he realizes his sinfulness before a mighty and divine Lord. It is through the breaking of five loaves and two fish that Jesus miraculously feeds multitudes. The insurmountable becomes possible. It is through the breaking of an alabaster jar that Jesus is anointed and prepared for his journey to the cross. And it's through Jesus' own broken body that you and I are made whole. I said last week the walls were a means of conforming our hearts to the worship of God. And so, friends, we need a deep work of God in our lives. For some of us, that means to begin a brand new life following God if you haven't been following God yet. For others, we need a work of God to rebuild that which is broken and to fortify it. So the question I want to spend some time thinking about now is what are the states of the walls of your life? Now, I'm going to over-spiritualize this somewhat. I hope you'll forgive my freedom here. But if you're a believer and you're stuck in patterns of sin, well, then the walls in your life are no good. What we see, rather, there are weak points of entry. A burnt gate here, rubble there. There are entry points for sin to come in and to corrupt and to control chaos rules rather than Christ. And so the question to you is, what is it going to take to rebuild those walls? What prayer and planning are you doing or have you done in order to have those priorities of your heart reordered? That God might yet again take first place in your worship of him. Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken down 
is a man who lacks self-control. See, friends, godliness is a part of our worship. God is worshipped when we seek holiness in our lives, when we seek out those areas where we know that we fail him time and again. And listen, we don't need much to pr provoke our flesh to sin. Our flesh is willing. It quickly desires to spurn God. And so this week, why don't you do a spiritual survey? Inspect the walls of your heart and commit it again to the Lordship of Christ and by His grace, rebuild. You see, rebuilding happens as a response to the grace of God in your life. You know that Christ was broken for you. As he died on the cross, as he gave up his spirit, the temple curtain was torn in two. Why? Well, to signify that the way to God has been opened. God would never again dwell in a temple made by human hands. He would dwell instead in a temple made by the divine. He would live in his creation. He would live in you. That is why Paul would later say in response to those engaging in sexual sin that they are defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. So friends, let us rebuild those walls in response to the grace of God. And by the grace of God, you need his help. Well, Nehemiah has inspected the walls. He knows what needs to be done. He has the vision. He's prayed. He's planned. He has prepared himself. Well, now we see next that he shares that vision with the rest of God's people. Have a look at verse 17 to 18. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king has said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. See again the wisdom that Nehemiah employs here. He, he outlines the problem, right? He's seen it with his own eyes. It's not hard to see. The city is in ruins. But he's not a bringer of bad news. He's a bringer of good news. He tells them of the hope of the gospel. God is with me. You want proof? See what the king of Persia has done. Friends, that can only be a work of God to, to move the hand of the king of Persia. Then he calls them to the task of rebuilding. So how do you encourage a discouraged people? Well, we see here that you give them great motivation. Nehemiah shares his vision with them, what God has laid on his heart to do for Jerusalem. We see also he positions himself among the people. See what he says? See the trouble that we are in, right? Nehemiah was quite happy in his palace, right? He, I think he lived quite a comfortable life. But see the trouble we are in. He doesn't blame anyone, but he puts himself alongside their troubles. Nehemiah, the comforter from God, would comfort his people by coming alongside their suffering, identifying with them and leading them to a greater hope found in God. You will no longer be in disgrace. 
God's gracious hand is upon me, and the king has given us his resources. Uh, it's quite possible that as Nehemiah arrived, that he had the king's cavalry, right? he had the army officers, and perhaps he even had all the wood from the king's forests. What other answer can there be? Let us rebuild. So they begin the good work. Friends, again, this is the gospel message. You know, the New Testament recounts Jesus weeping as he looks over the lost of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus was a prayer and a planner also. Not only do we see him praying throughout his whole ministry, but he had a plan, a plan from the beginning of creation that he would leave his throne in heaven for the very purpose of rebuilding his kingdom, of reclaiming the lost, of reorientating the hearts of man back to God in worship. And Jesus would do that by humbling himself, by placing himself amongst us to become like us, identifying with his people, becoming a suffering servant in order that those who suffer from the effects of sin and death, you and me, may become whole, may become holy and righteous and safe and secure forever in the kingdom of God. But friends, that is not a future event. That is a now event. Jesus was the beginning of the kingdom coming in. The church is God's master, uh, rebuilding master plan. And so you, if your faith is in Jesus, you are a part of that kingdom. And as we discovered last week, we have a kingdom mission. Each of us is called in some way to be a part of that rebuilding effort of God's kingdom. Now, folks, God has given us a great gospel vision at this church. And one of the ways we seek to reach the lost, to, to make disciples, to continue to grow as, as a healthy bride of Christ, was that property over there. People have spent years, not four months, years praying and planning. And there's been tough discussions and there's been tears. But there's also been great joy as we've seen God answer the prayers. And there's been patience to seek wisdom. Listen, no decision in the purchasing of that property was made quickly, right? We, we know that. It was not made carelessly or without thought. It was not made without first seeking God's heart and without your approval and your commitment. And so I'm going to be a bit cheeky today. No. I want to push, push us today to have the same response as that of the Israelites. Let us rebuild. But we can all buy into visions, can't we? We saw the video earlier, the music in the background sounds lovely. It's great. It's exciting. We can all be excited about it. But the question is, will we follow through? Are we going to follow through with it? You see, the Israelites didn't just say, let us rebuild. What happens? Immediately they began the good work. So friends, let us not be idle about this work. Let's not leave it to someone else. Let's not leave it to another generation. Let's not leave it to someone else in this church. 
Instead, let us together pursue the vision God has given us as a church. We have a five to 15 year goal of paying off the mortgage to the building, but friends, we've got a goal by the end of the year. And if you look at the numbers, if you look at the size of our church, it is not impossible for us to achieve that goal. And so I want to say to you, let's not be slow in doing this. Let us search our hearts. Yes, let us look at our finances. Uh, Let's look at them well. Let's pray to God for wisdom that God would meet our personal needs as well as our ministry needs. He knows our own personal struggles. Let's look at our finances realistically. Let's plan them well. And then let's give. Let's give. Let's be motivated to see this done together because here's what I, here's what I don't want to see happen. They say in, in all sorts of organizations that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And in my experience in churches, that has been true as well. And I can envisage that over the next five years, 20% of church folk will give 80% of the money. And you know what? It'll be slow and it'll be discouraging And it'll be disheartening. It'll get done. Oh, I believe it. But friends, that's not what we're called to do. That's not what we're called to do. If you call St. Aidan's your home, you have a responsibility to give. I want to be very clear, not an obligation. It's not you just have to give because you're a member of this church. When you understand the grace of God, what he's done for you, That should be your motivation to give. Friends, we've got a great story to tell of a great Savior who who has taken your life and begun that rebuilding process. And look, we're, we're not idolaters. We know that building is not a temple. We know that building is not our salvation. We know it's just brick and mortar, and eventually one day it itself will be rubble. We know that but it is the means now by which we may further the cause of the gospel. It is the vision that God has given us at this church. I believe that. And God has laid on our hearts and we ought to pursue it with vigor, with joy, with obedience, and with great hope that God's gracious hand will be with us. Let us then keep trusting in his promises. Let's keep doing the good work he has called us to do for the praise and glory of his name. And all God's people said, amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the great encouragement there is here. And thank you also for the challenge. Father, firstly, as we look at the walls in our heart, Father, where are the weak points of entry? Lord, would you help us to survey our hearts well? We know that your Holy Spirit lives in us. And although you have covered us in the the blood of your Son, although you have made us righteous, although you have justified us, Father, we know that we are far from perfect. We are far from the likeness of your Son. And so we need your help. Father, where there is known patterns of sin in our life, would you help us to rebuild those walls that it may no longer come in? It may no longer cause chaos in us. It may no longer steal our joy. 
that we'd be made clean again, that we might bring you the worship that you deserve. And Father, we pray for our future ministry here. We thank you for the many good gifts that you give us. And oh God, I ask that we would not be people who seek to build their own individual kingdoms. Or even as a church, that we would not seek to build our own kingdom. But Lord, we would be all about your kingdom. Give us that passion. Give us that desire to see this work done so that others might know you and call you Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.